We have or are quickly becoming a nation in which words mean absolutely nothing. And if you're tired of it, good. Because words do mean something. And God's word, specifically the Bible, contains the words of God that reflect the mind and the will of God. And the words are found there to instruct us, to to rebuke us, to correct us, and to train us in a way that we should go that is pleasing to God. Words mean something. And in fact, if you've got your Bibles, look specifically at Hebrews chapter 4, where we find these meaningful words. Hebrews chapter 4, God tells us in verse 12, it says, For the Word of God, the Word of God is living and is active and sharper than two-edged sword. And it's piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Notice that the word of God is living and is active and is sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And the wonderful truth about that is, and it would probably be illustrated best by a story that was told a few weeks ago by a gentleman that had invited a friend to come with him to hear what God has to say and whatever the meaning and the context was at that particular time. But it was a couple of weeks ago, and he came up to me afterwards and he said, Chuck, i got to tell you a story. So what? He goes, I brought, I brought a guest. He said, and as he was sitting there throughout the morning and he was listening to the words of God, he whispered over to his wife and he said, boy, that guy's kicking my rear end this morning. <laughs> and uh, what was fascinating about it is I never met the guy. I don't know him from anybody. I don't know what's going on in his life. And, you know, and the interesting thing about it is that, you know, I don't even care. (laughs) You know, not to that degree, but what's fascinating to me is I did a wedding last night and it was a pretty interesting, eclectic group of people in the same thing. Probably 80% of them have never been to a church, never heard anybody open the Bible, never heard anything, any explanation. And it was fascinating because the same result was found in that group of people. And the reason for it is very simple. It's not because I've got anything to offer. I'm not that sharp. And it's not because my opinion's that important because it's not. We all have one and we could all, you know, we could all argue which one's more important. But see, the point that God continually makes is this. When the word of God goes out and the words of God go out, it penetrates the hearts and the minds and the souls of us as individuals. Because God's word is living and it's active. And it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And where you and I can't reach another human being, the Word of God, when it goes out, never comes back empty, God promises. And it's able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And what's fascinating about that is we've got a variety of people who come. And what's interesting to me and what's exciting to me is that I know by the promise of God that if God's Word goes out, you will never find this to be a waste of time. Because the word of God will penetrate your heart and penetrate your soul. And God's able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of your heart. You may be here to play a game with somebody that invited you. You may be here for a variety of reasons. You may just be putting on a front. But God knows it and he will deal with you exactly as you need to be dealt with. And that's fascinating as you consider the truth that's being being expressed in God's word. The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And it goes on to say, and God's word will judge us. Accordingly, God's word is powerful. It's living, active, sharp, penetrating, judging, condemning, and often encouraging when he needs to encourage us as well. It's a wonderful gift that God has given to humanity that we have the word of God that that reveals the will of God, the mind of God, the intention of God, and what God plans to do in the future in each one of our lives. And so it becomes imperative that we pay attention. It becomes imperative that when you leave here and like that gentleman that says, man, I'm getting my rear end kicked today. It's imperative that you pay attention and go, okay, well, what are you going to do? How are you going to apply what you're learning? How are you going to apply what God's convicted in the area you're being convicted? What are you going to do? Are you going to ignore it? Are you going to hope that it goes away? Are you not going to come back because you don't want to be convicted again? Therefore, let's stay away from the truth of God's word. See, people don't like to be confronted with truth because they don't want to have to deal with change that needs to take place in their life. They want to continue, if it's in the case, to be selfish. They want to be selfish. Why? Because, you know what, it's either God's will will be done or my will will be done. And that's the struggle of every one of us as human beings. 
God, I don't have a problem with this section of your word because it doesn't really apply to me. I got that, that part covered. But this section over here where it, it penetrates my heart, it judges me and says, I am guilty before God. You know what? I think I'll discount that. That must be from man's opinion. It's interesting, the guy who got married last night, his father, his, his stepfather is a clergyman. I like when people express that to me. Um, well, he's a clergyman. So that's interesting. He's a clergyman that believes in parts of the Bible and the parts he doesn't like, he doesn't believe in that. So now, how stupid is that? Hi, nice to meet you. What are you thinking? <laughs> Daniel chapter 11. Let's see what God's thinking. Daniel chapter 11, as we listen to the words of God and the message that he sent to Daniel in this final vision, it's a message that's sent to provide understanding so that Daniel could act properly. A message that was sent by God because Daniel was highly esteemed or greatly loved by God. In Daniel chapter 11, we'll start with verse 21 and we'll break it down. But in 21 through 24, we read these words. And in his place... A despicable person, if you remember, there's a succession of kings that's taking place here. He says, and in his place, a despicable person will arise, on whom the honor of kingship has not been conferred. But he will come in a time of tranquility and seize the kingdom by intrigue. And the overflowing forces will be flooded away before him and shattered, and also the prince of the covenant. And after an alliance is made with him, he will practice deception, and he will go up and gain power with a small force of people. It says, and in a time of tranquility, he will enter the richest parts of his realm and he will accomplish what his fathers never did, nor his ancestors. And he will distribute plunder and booty and possessions among them. And he will devise his schemes against strongholds, but only for a period of time. Now, if you recall in our last session, we learned that God told Daniel what was, to, what was in store for the people of God, specifically here, the nation of Israel. And as the future was clearly outlined in verses 2 through 20 of chapter 11, remember that Daniel saw this vision in the third year of Cyrus, which we know is 536 B.C. And it's interesting as we go through this because it focused on basically the lines that come up here, the Ptolemies and the Seleucids that are found in Daniel chapter 11 and the succession that takes place. We can look back historically and we know these things to be accurate. From Daniel's perspective, he had no idea as he looked into the future and as he recorded the words that were given to him, he had no idea exactly even what he was writing, but we know that they came to fruition because we have hindsight as we look and we can see everything turned out to be as accurate as God said that they would, which is no surprise to me, but it may be a surprise to some others. And what's interesting too as we go through this is, is that God outlines and lays out the future. Now I want you to remember the reaction that Daniel had as he looked at this vision. Though he did not clearly understand it, he saw the vision and it terrified him to the point where he was fearful and fell on his face. He was terrified of what that was laid out before us. Isn't it, haven't you ever wondered like, you know, God, give me a glimpse of the future. I don't know about you. I don't want to know too much about it. I just, I'm on a need-to-know basis. You know what I'm saying? I just, God, tell me what I need to know. And the reason for it is that, you know, the revelation of Jesus Christ, the book of Revelation, was given to John that outlines all of human, all of human history into the future, and John fell like a dead man when he saw what was coming up. Now, Daniel fell like a dead man when he saw what was coming up in the near future as well. And so, what I get out of that is this. In Matthew chapter 6, God says, you know what? Don't be concerned about tomorrow. Don't be anxious for tomorrow. Why? Because each day has enough trouble of its own. Let's just deal with things today. I just want to be obedient today. I want to deal with today as God would want me to live. And when we get through today, if God gives me tomorrow, then I'll live that day as well. Now, that's not saying, you know, totally disregard the future, but it's saying let's keep things in perspective. You know, we all want to know what does the future hold? You know what? All I care about what the future holds is who holds the future. That's comforting to me. And But we'll also talk about that. The next series that we're going to do, uh, probably uh, we'll be done with Daniel at the end of this month, so February, probably a four to six week series. What I want to do, though, is concentrate on the 70th week of Daniel, which is all future events for us, which obviously has a concern for us. And I want to talk about the 70th week of Daniel, which has to do with the rapture of the church, the seven-year tribulation, uh, uh, and after that, the millennium and also eternity, so we can get a good feel what we have to look forward to. And for those who will be here during the tribulation, we can warn them as to what to expect because we won't really care we won't be around but on the other hand you have to come so you understand all of that as well but God gives us the information that we need so when we look at all this Ptolemy was a general under uh, Alexander the Great 
Ptolemy ended up taking over uh, the, what, was, what we know as Egypt, the southern kingdom, and, uh, and that's what we find there. So the Ptolemies became the name that was used for all of those kings that would come in succession, and the, it was really the dynastic name of the Macedonian Hellenistic uh, uh, kings that would arise after the first Ptolemy, the first general that left. He was part of the four generals, as you remember, who um, succeeded uh, Alexander the Great. Now, Seleucus, as we see here, the Seleucids, Seleucus was the other general, and he ended up inheriting the northern kingdom. And so what we have here is a division of a southern kingdom and a northern kingdom, and Israel is caught in the middle. And the battles that continue to take place here is that Israel is stuck in the middle, and it was a time of tremendous suffering and tribulation for the people of God because they're sandwiched in between these two great powers who continually battled with one another. Now, in verse 21, we have a turning point as you look down through all the succession, and it's going to bring us down to uh, uh, where we see in verse uh, chapter 11, verse 21, Antiochus IV Epiphanes is a man who was introduced to us in this particular section. He is very important, and the reason that he is important is because God warns Daniel of a man who will one day arise from the line of the Seleucids, which we see a man who was recorded in history as Antiochus Epiphanes IV, or Antiochus IV Epiphanes. He was an individual who was given as much attention in God's word than all the others before him can bind. So if words mean something, and they do, and the quantity of words mean something, which they also do, then we need to take close, pay close attention to who this man is because God wants not only Daniel, but to us to realize who he is, what he's all about. And the reason for it is very simple. Because Antiochus IV Epiphanes is a foreshadow of the coming world leader who is yet to come in our, into our future days. He will be a leader that will arise and he will basically be the king of the world. He will be a world dictator. Uh, the Bible clearly uh, gives us a portrait of him, which we'll find next time when we get together as we continue to go through the vision. He is very important in human history, and he is also very important into our future because he is a foreshadow of exactly what the people of the world can expect from this coming world leader who will arise in later days. So God pay, gives us uh, much information about him, and basically the vision at this point, uh, Daniel's given an understanding of this man Antiochus, and as we look at it, the Jewish revolt that will take place. If you got your Bibles, turn back to Daniel chapter 8, because as we look at this, Daniel chapter 8, we've already been introduced to him once, but as a way of refreshing our memories, Daniel chapter 8, starting with verse 9, says, And out of one of them came forth a rather small horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the beautiful land, which is Israel. And it grew up uh, to the host of heaven and caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall down to earth, and it trampled them down. It even magnified himself. In this case, we know who he is, so we can put in he even magnified himself, Antiochus did, to be equal with the commander of the host. And, it, and he removed the regular sacrifice from him, and the place of a sanctuary was thrown down. And on account of transgression, the host will be given over to the horn along with the regular sacrifice, and he will fling truth to the ground and perform his will and prosper. As we look at this in verse 23, it continues to go on talking about this particular person that God will identify. Now, the question is, what does God, ident what does God tell Daniel about this, this man and what's so important about it? And I want to break it out for you kind of in an outline form so we can take a look at it one step at a time. The first thing is this. He points out his deception. If you go back to Daniel chapter 11, we'll see that the first thing that God wants Daniel to realize, and also anyone who has access to the Word of God, what he wants us to realize is that this man will be very deceptive as far as his character is concerned. It says that in his place a despicable person will arise. Right off the start, God wants all of us to be aware and to be forewarned as to what type of person this man would be. As we look at what Antiochus Epiphanes did, we should uh, warn those who may be around when this future world leader takes position as to what they can expect because God's word is very clear as to what will take place in the future. Now, I want you to don't forget at this time that as Daniel looks into the future, he's looking 373 years into the future at the fulfillment exactly as God told him it would take place. As I said, often we lose some of the significance of prophecy as we look back and go, well, what's the big deal? But try to 
picture yourself being in a position where God is showing you, as we will next week, where God is showing us a picture of the future. We're not sure exactly what the timing is or when it will take place. As Daniel was given this vision, he's looking 373 years into the future and everything that God said took place exactly as God said that it would. So first thing I want you to notice about this man is his character. Notice his character. Verse 21 gives us a good glimpse of that. It says, and in his place, a despicable person will arise. Some translations have a vile person. Others have a contemptible person. I guess God just never read that politically correct pamphlet that's being passed out. But he's a nice guy. No, God says he's despicable, he's contemptible, and he's a vile person. And what's interesting, too, as we look at this man's life is, he's a man that in his heart, said there is no God. He took the title Antiochus Epiphanes, but he also added the word Theos Epiphanes, which means God manifest in the flesh. He said basically to those who were his subjects, you are looking at God manifest in the flesh. Now, we know that the Bible says a fool says in his heart there is no God. And there is no more contemptible person in the world today, vile person, despicable person in the sight of God, than those who reject the fact that there is a God, and on top of that, make themselves to be God. God has a very clear description of such a person. They're despicable, they're contemptible, and they're vile. And they'll also be judged by God. Because God is a jealous God. And God makes it very clear, there is only one God, and guess what? I'm not him, you're not him. And Antiochus Epiphanes IV was not him either. And to take the title, you are looking basically at God, you know, manifest in the flesh, it was the exact same title that's given to Jesus Christ our Lord. Because in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It goes on to tell us, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He took the same title that was rightly reserved for Jesus Christ. Hmm. His character was despicable. It's also a good time to bring up the fact that, you know what, character does make a difference. And the reason that character makes a difference is because ultimately character will be played out in our actions. Who we are from a character standpoint will ultimately always carry forth into the actions that we take. Character is very important, and you can't separate it and say, I'm this kind of character in this group, and I'm this kind of character in that group. I'm this kind of character on Sundays at church, and I'm this kind of character when I'm with my friends at night. I'm this kind of character at work. I'm this kind of character at school. I'm this kind of... No, you know what? You are who you are, and eventually who you are will be demonstrated in the actions that you take. And the same thing is true of Antiochus, as we'll see. His circumstances were fascinating as God gives us the insight into this. He says, on whom the honor of kingship has not been conferred. But he will come in a time of tranquility and seize the kingdom by intrigue. What I did and what I, what I want you to do, and you might want to do it in the, in the column of your Bible, is that everything that God says will happen, why don't you just jot a little, like, little line next to it. So at the end of this section, you can count them all up. Because every one of these statements is an individual predictive prophecy. The fact that in his place, a despicable person will arise indicates the type of person who will come after this previous king. On him, the honor of kingship has not been conferred. Meaning this, he was not rightly in the succession to become king. It wasn't his position to gain. In fact, it was his brother's position, and he should have had it, but through, as God says, it has not been conferred, but he will come in a time of tranquility and seize the kingdom by intrigue. So the Bible tells us how this guy will actually even rise up as king. He was not in the line or the successive line to become king. He will actually take his brother's place and become the king. And the way that he's going to do it is through some political maneuvering. And we're going to see exactly how that took place when we look further at, what, at what's taken place here as far as this political intrigue is concerned. He had some conflicts. And the conflicts that he had uh, were with the people that were around him. The overflowing forces in verse 22 will be flooded away before him, shattered, and also the prince of the covenant. 
The term Prince of the Covenant has to do with the high priest. According to history, Antiochus routed the forces of Egypt in, be in between Pelusium and the Cation Mountains, and the Prince of the Covenant is a, refer a reference to Ananias III. Now, Ananias III was the high priest. Now, what he did was he took Jason, who, who was a relative, and he said, look, I want to make you the high priest. And Jason said, fine, I'd love to be the high priest. How much is it going to cost me? So Antiochus said, it's going to cost you so much money. You give me so much money, and I'll make you high priest, and I'll depose of Ananias III, who we see exactly here, as God said. He also shattered the prince of the covenant. So he came in, he made some manipulations. He wanted Jason to come in because Jason promised him a full-scale Hellenization of the Jews. Now, what a Hellenization program basically was was this. If you remember when we were going through the first chapter in the book of Daniel, uh, we had talked about the fact that when another nation would come in and capture a, a people, they would take them into captivity. The first thing that they wanted to do was what? Change the way they thought. They would change their thoughts, they would change their language, they would change their diet, and you remember specifically that's exactly what Daniel was being proposed, uh, the proposal to Daniel was, change their thoughts, change their language, change their uh, diet, and then finally change their, what, religious beliefs. And so Jason promised Antiochus, he said, look, we're going to make Greeks out of these people after all. And he went through a full-scale program to change the way the Jews thought about their God, about their culture, about their language, about their diet, about their whole program. And at the time of Christ, the, the Greek influence was clearly seen. You have the Decapolis, which is ten cities that are all located in Israel. And they were given that name because Deca means ten in, in the Greek language. And there were ten cities that were all given Greek names. When By the time that our Lord came, the, the Greek culture had already permeated the Jewish, uh, Jewish culture and Jewish tradition. They did what they set out to do and it all started in the day of Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, if you read Acts chapter 6, you will read about a, a struggle that took place between what? Between the Hellenistic Jews... Jews who had already bought into the Greek culture and those who had not. And there were constant conflicts between these two groups of people. And so what Jason did was he promised Antiochus, look, I'll give you the money, you make me high priest, and I'll go through and I'll, I'll put together your program to change the way these people think. And that's exactly what God said would take place. There arose one to become a king who wasn't even in succession to be king. He took the position of king through intrigue and through suspense. And he also deposed of the prince of the covenant, which is the high priest. And he put his own man in that position. It's like politics as usual, even then. So we look at this and in verse 23, we also see basically his craftiness of how he put all this together. Verses 23 and 24 it says, And after an alliance is made... With him, he will practice deception. He will go up and gain power with a small force of people. All of these predictive prophecies. And in a time of tranquility, he will enter the richest parts of the realm. And he will accomplish what his fathers never did, nor his ancestors. And he will distribute plunder, booty, and possessions among them. And he will devise his schemes against strongholds, but only for a period of time. Verse 23. He will practice deception. Well, of course he will. Why? Because that's who he is. That's his character. He's, an, he's, a not, he's not a trustworthy person. You can't turn your back on him. You can't believe anything that he says. You can't believe a person who says, well, you can believe me this time, but you can't believe me next time. Do you ever have somebody say to you, hey, I swear to you, this time I, I'm telling you the truth. That's the most frightening thing to hear from somebody that's uttering something to you that they want you to believe that they're telling the truth. I swear to you I'm telling the truth. Well, what does that mean? I have to ask you to swear to me you're telling the truth every time you open your mouth from now on? Or you're saying basically that, well, sometimes I don't always tell you the truth. But this time, I swear to you, you've got to trust me on this one. This time, I'm really telling you the truth. Jesus' answer to that was what? Let your yes be yes and your no be no. You never have to go around saying, I swear this time what I'm saying to you is true. If everything you say is true, you don't have to worry about qualifying what you're about to say. But this man was a man of deception. And so you couldn't trust him. Nobody could trust him. And that's exactly what God says. He's a man of great deception. And so as we go through this, God gives us a pretty good picture of his deception, his deceptive nature, his character, his vow is despicable, his circumstances. He's going to manipulate things. He's going to make things happen. There's a lot of backdoor meetings going on. And, uh, and the sad thing is that, you know, isn't that so, a sad statement of how things take place in our world today? I don't care if it's a church, I don't care if it's government, I don't care if it's business. There's always a lot of backdoor maneuvering going on, isn't there? 
all trying to you know, maneuver and manipulate and get what they want out of where they're heading and try to sell people and convince people. And, you know, it's amazing to me, you know, all the, all the stuff that's going on even in Washington today where we're supposed to be having a trial where the senators sit and they listen to all the evidence. And, and, and it's just amazing that, you know, it doesn't really matter what the evidence is. There's all kind of manipulation going on. There's all kind of secret door meetings taking place. They're on Meet the Press in the morning. They're talking about what, the, you know, and, it, and it's like you're in the middle of a trial. No other jury in the world could do that. Think about it. You can't manipulate the outcome of a trial before you've heard the evidence. But everyone's trying to cut a deal already. Why? Because it's politically expedient. So who cares about truth? Let's just do what's easiest for everybody. Fortunately, God doesn't buy into that. He just tells it the way it is. You don't like it, he doesn't care. Because you know why? (laughs) He's God. Okay, the second thing. So he moves on in verse 25 through 27, and that's his destruction of Egypt. Now we're told that with a large army, with a large army, he will stir up his strength and courage against the king of the south. Remember, the king of the south is who? Ptolemy, because he's the king of the north, Antiochus, representing Syria. He will stir up this army and his courage against the king of the south. It says the king of the south will wage war with a large and very powerful army, but he'll not be able to stand because of the plots devised against him. Those who eat from the king's provisions will try to destroy him. His army will be swept away and many will fall in battle. The two kings with their hearts bent on evil will sit at the table and lie to each other, but to no avail because an end will, will still come at the appointed time. Okay, let's take a look at it. God is telling Daniel far into the past as he projects into the future that there will be a large army who will stir up his strength and courage against the king of the south. So Antiochus Epiphanes will raise up an army and he will go against the king of the south that we know as Ptolemy or one of the Ptolemaic kings. The king of the south will wage war with a large and very, very powerful army, but he, will, but he will not be able to stand because of the plots devised against him. Now he's talking about Ptolemy and the Egyptian, uh, the Egyptian empire isn't going to be able to withstand the threats that take place and the battle that, take, that, that comes forth because of it. Those who eat from the king's provision will try to destroy him and his army will be swept away and many will fall in battle. So what he's talking about, what what God tells Daniel and us is this, that the king of the north is going to invade the king of the south. Antiochus IV Epiphanes will invade the the Ptolemaic kingdom and he will take over that's there. And the reason that he'll take over is because those who are involved in the southern kingdom are basically going to sell out. Uh, They're going to sell out for whatever purposes and that's how they're going to end up becoming defeated. Now, As he projects this, he also says, oh, and by the way, after this battle takes place, the king of the north, Antiochus, will sit down with Ptolemy at the dinner table and they will talk nice to each other, basically tell each other what they want to hear. And in the meantime, God, why? Because we know this, because the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And so while they are projecting outwardly this appearance that, hey, you know what? I think we can work together. I think we can get together and we can form one big kingdom. There's no sense in us keep fighting back and forth. just causing a lot of bloodshed and a lot of innocent people to be hurt. So why don't you and I cut a deal and we'll sit down at the table and the whole time they're cutting the deal, they got their fingers crossed behind them. And they're thinking, you know what? I'm going to kill you if I get a chance. That, my friends, is a picture of the United Nations. (laughs) We are the world. That's nonsense. You know what? Every country of this world has their own agenda. And sometimes, you know what, they're diametrically opposed to the agenda of others. So the fact that we can all try to, you know, kiss and and get along is exactly what God's saying. You know what, the heart of man is wicked and deceitful above all else. And who can understand it? God can understand it. And he tells it exactly the way it is. And so as we look at this, they're sitting at the table. And what God knows is that, you know what, they're feigning friendship, but they're lying through their teeth. They are lying through their teeth. Oh, that's not a politically correct statement either. But it turned out to be true, so I guess that you can say it if it turns out to be true. Third thing, and this is real important for the nation of Israel, and that's his desolation of Israel as they're caught in the middle between this ongoing feud that takes place. And as we read in verses 28 through 33, we read these words. The king of the north will return to his own country, there's Antiochus again, with great wealth, but his heart will be set against the holy covenant. He will take action against it and then return to his own country. Now, at the appointed time, he will invade the south again, but this time the outcome will be different from what it was before. And so as we're going through this, we'll stop at the very first thing. 
whenever the north went into the south, Israel was caught in the middle and they were trampled on in this constant battle that was going on. It'd be like being in the middle of a, you know, you're the pit in the middle of a tug-of-war contest. Somebody's always fallen into the pit and they're pulling the other side through and they're going back and forth and you're getting trampled on. It says the king of the north will return to his own country with great wealth. Uh, we know historically that's exactly what happened, that uh, Antiochus stole all of the plunder that he had and all of the wealth that he took out of Egypt. And it, as he said in the last verse, uh, basically he gave it to all of his people and he started to share in the wealth. And, uh, you know, it's like they say in a, in a democracy, basically we're always going to elect people who promise to give us the most for us doing the least. Isn't that true? Think about it. You're not going to want to... No one wants to elect somebody who's going to tell you the truth if the truth isn't what you want to hear. So we're always going to elect people that tell us what we want to hear and then hope they deliver. And even when they're telling us, they know they can't deliver because it doesn't make any sense, but they know that's what we want to hear, so they tell us what we want to hear, so we elect them so they'll do what they want to do anyway. It's still the greatest system in the world, but it has some flaws. The king of the north will return... And as he goes across Egypt, he will set himself against the Holy Covenant. And we're going to take a look at that as we go through it. Now it says, at the point of time, he will invade the south again, but this time the outcome will be different from what it was before. It says, ships of the western coastland will oppose him and he will lose heart. Then he'll turn back and vent his fury against the Holy Covenant. He will return and show favor to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. It says, his armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress, abolish the daily sacrifice... Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. He goes on to say, With flattery, he will corrupt those who have violated the covenant, but the people who know their God will firmly resist him. Those who are wise will instruct many, says, though for a time they will fall by the sword or be burned or captured or plundered. When they fall, they'll receive a little help and many who are not sincere will join them. Some of the wise will stumble so that they may be refined, purified and made spotless until the time of the end, for it will still come at the appointed time. There are several things about the desolation that's taken place in Israel that will be a foreshadow of what comes into the future. And I want to go through it one at a time and uh, we'll basically throw the outline down like this. But the first thing that we, we notice as we look at is the attitude that uh, Antiochus has towards the Holy Covenant. In verse 28 we read the words, Then he will return to the land with much plunder, but his heart will be set against the Holy Covenant. His heart will be set against the Holy Covenant. Basically, what it's saying is that, you know what, he will be dead set against what God's plan is for the nation of Israel. He will be dead set against the promises that God made to the people of Israel. Daniel was also determined in his heart not to participate in the king's diet. Daniel had determined in his heart not to compromise when they told him not to pray. He determined and set in his heart not to do that. And basically here what's happening is the same thing. The same resolve that Daniel had not to be disobedient to God was the exact same resolve that Antiochus had to be disobedient to God. He set his heart to hate the people of God. And there's a reason for it. Because he claimed to be God. He wanted to be worshipped as God. He wanted to be blindly followed as God. And that's one of the most tragic character traits of any human leader. And we've always got to be careful about that and measure anybody's character against the, the Word of God. And the reason for it is, how do you think people are manipulated by those who are in powerful leadership positions and people that have persuasive speech, people that are charismatic, people that uh, know how to use words to their advantage? And what God says is this, you better never, never, never have a blind eye or closed ear to what God's Word has to say about measuring people against the Word of God. And the reason for it is that people can be easily misled and, and led astray by those who are vile, despicable, and contemptible people in the sight of God. The reason Antiochus hated God's people was simply because they were God's people. And we must never forget that. The reason that this world, one day, if it isn't already happening in our country, it's happening all over the world. The reason the world hates Christians is because we are the people of God. And we represent God. We represent truth. We are to be a light in darkness. And the darkness hates the light. And the darkness will do whatever it can to extinguish the light. 
The greatest tragedy in the church today is that we are extinguishing the light ourselves and it has nothing to do with our enemy trying to put the light out. We're sticking our Bibles away. We're putting them on a shelf somewhere. We're doing everything but preach the Word of God, which is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's the weapon that God's given to us to reach humanity with the truth. And we are extinguishing our own light and we're not being the light that we should. The question I have for you is, what kind of light are you shining in the darkness of the place that you work or in the family in which you find yourself or in the neighborhood in which you live? How light is your light compared to the darkness around you? See, we are becoming, you know, our salt is becoming tasteless and it becomes worthless at that point. And so as we look at this, we need to realize that Antiochus hated the people of God simply because they were the people of God. And they would not give him the allegiance that they gave to God. He was set against them. He set his heart against them. So as we, we go through this, he made an attempt, as we see, he made an attempt in verse 29 to invade Egypt again at the appointed time. And I, don't miss that either. At the appointed time. All throughout this particular prophecy and all throughout the Word of God, God is very clear, and that's this. God is absolutely 100% in control. He will only be in power until the time comes where God says the day is over for him to be in power. He is only in power because God allowed him to raise up and to be in power. He is only in power for a point of time. These events will happen only for an appointed time. God is absolutely in control of human history and we need to take comfort and be encouraged by that truth. It says at the appointed time Antiochus will return and come to Egypt again but this time he will, he, it will not turn out the way it did before. Meaning what? This time he's going to lose. Last time he won, this time he'll lose. For the ships of Kittim or Cyprus will come against him. Therefore he will be disheartened and he will return and become enraged at the Holy Covenant. He will take action so he will come back and show regard for those who forsake him. Antiochus made a third expedition against Egypt and it was in 168 B.C. without the success that he had previously. He was defeated. Now the ships of Cyprus were ships that were uh, from the Roman Empire. Now the Roman Empire was just coming into, basically into power. It was just getting started and that's exactly what Daniel was told in Daniel chapter 2 where there would be Babylon, there would be Medo-Persia, then there would be uh, Mass Macedonia or Greece, and then there would be Rome. So all of these things are happening, and God continues to give us and fill us in on the picture. Now, the ships of Cyprus were Roman ships that were called to come to help fight off Antiochus because they didn't like Antiochus. So the, the Ptolemaic dynasty got together and they said, hey, you know what, we need help, let's call in Rome. And so Rome came to their rescue, and uh, when Rome ended up defeating Antiochus or basically stopping him in his tracks, they said, look, we don't want you taking this country. We don't want you fighting these people anymore. He said, so, you're going to make a decision right now that this is it. You're not going to do this anymore. Now, Antiochus said, well, give me a little bit of time to think about it. And uh, they said, no, you're not going to get any time. So here's what they did. They drew a circle in the sand around Antiochus. They said, look, dude, that's the living version. <laughs> Yay, dude. <laughs> they said, look, you're going to give us an answer before you step out of this circle. And if you decide to go against Egypt, then you're deciding to go against us. So why don't you think about it for a second? But you're not stepping out of the circle without you making a commitment to us. Antiochus steps out of the circle, says, fine, I'll leave these people alone. He goes back and he heads back to Syria. Well, guess what happens? He's angry at Israel. Why is he angry at Israel? Because he's embarrassed because he just, you know, got defeated in Egypt. It's like you're having a bad day at the office and you come home and you're mad at your dog. You ever that transfer of anger that takes place? You know, it's like, what are you angry at me for? Because uh, I had a bad day. I, I know. Well, you know what? I had a great day, so don't mess up mine. You know, I didn't do anything. And so he marches through Israel and the first thing that he does is, look what it says. And so, and the forces from him will arise and he goes back through Israel and he'll come back and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. So he's enraged at the Holy Covenant and he takes action. So he goes back up, he's angry because he just was defeated, and then this abomination takes place where he takes out everything that, that all his frustrations he's going to take out on Israel now. 
And so when he goes up against them, he is furious about the Holy Covenant. He is furious about the Word of God. He is furious about the sacrificial system. He's furious about the circumcision. He's furious about the sacrifices that are made by the people of God to God. He's furious about everything and he's enraged by all of it. And he comes back through and he's enraged at the Holy Covenant and he takes action. So he'll come back and show regard for those who forsake the covenant. Notice this. And this will be exactly the foreshadow of what we'll talk about next week. But the coming world leader will be the same thing. And that basically is this. If you forsake your God and you believe in me, then I will spare you. But if you continue allegiance to your God, then I will kill you. It's, a, it's, it's going to be the version of don't step out of the circle until you tell me how you want this to end up. And that's exactly what he did. Now notice what happened. He went back into, he went back into Israel and he had 22,000 soldiers that marched in on the Sabbath and he began to kill the people of God. He marched into the temple, which we learned in, Roman, in, 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 in chapter 8. He marched into the temple. He sacrificed a pig on the altar he made the Jews come and do the same thing when it violated the covenant of God. And if they didn't sacrifice a pig to the God that he established, then they would, be, they would be martyred on the spot. It was one of the bloodiest days in the history of the nation of Israel or in the Jewish people, and it was an abomination that took place. He went into the people of God, and he gave them a choice. Now, there were some who basically sold out. He said he gave regard for those who would forsake the holy covenant. There would be those who say, hey, you know what? I'm not really into this anyway. I just kind of came because, you know, my wife made me come, you know. And it was kind of like, I, you know, I was never one of them. Don't worry about it. You know, that's fine with me. And so, he, you know, they would sell out. It says, and the forces from him will arise. It will desecrate the sanctuary fortress. was an abomination, as we see. Do away with the regular sacrifice. They'll set up the abomination of desolation, which was basically setting up an idol in the temple itself and forcing the people of God to worship the idol. The same thing that Nebuchadnezzar did when he built the image of solid gold, if you'll recall. The same thing has been going on throughout human history, and that's this. You will make a choice. You will serve God, your God, and pay the consequences, or you will serve me or my God, and I'll cut you a break. And it's interesting because many of us struggle with that, don't we? Are you going to do what's right before your God and lose your job, or are you going to serve our version of God and we'll cut you a break. Are you going to serve your God and lose your friends? Or are you going to serve our version of God so you can be one of us? Are you going to serve your God? Really, are you going to serve your God? Are you serious about serving your God and paying the consequences or the price that may come with that? Or are you going to be one of us? See, that choice has always existed, hasn't it? It exists today. I worked for a lunatic, despicable, vile, contemptible person one time that basically came to me and said, look, until you see God's name on your paycheck, you're going to do what I tell you to do. Woo! Hey, man, God can provide for me. I don't need you. After he pondered that for about a week, he said, you're right. I don't need you. And it was a great job. It was a job I made more money than I ever made in my life. I had more freedom than I ever had. And that was a bummer. But there's no choice sometimes, is there? Are you going to do what's right before God? Or are you going to sell out? The thing I learned about Daniel is this. He never sold out. Never took the easy road. Never compromised. Never rationalized it. Never justified it. But his heart was set to do what was right before God. He never sold out. But that's the choice Antiochus gave the people. It says, And by smooth words, he will turn to godlessness, those who act wickedly toward the covenant. He will basically attack the people of God. But the people who know their God will display strength and take action. And those who have insight among the people will give understanding to the many Yet they will fall by sword and by flame, by captivity, by plunder for many days. Now when they fall, they will be granted a little help, and many will join them in hypocrisy. And some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine, purge, and make them pure until the end time, because it is still to come at the appointed time. 
What do we learn from all of this? You know, as I go through this, these are just some thoughts. You, you know, God's probably impressing some things on, on your heart differently than He impressed on mine because He deals with us as individuals. And yet I want to share with you some things that I learned from it and maybe that you can as well. And, uh, and, and I, want, I would hope that you would share the things that God taught you with those around you and myself because the Word of God is living and active. And God does teach us and He does want us to know truth. And He also wants us to take action when it needs to be taken accordingly. The first thing I learned is this. Once again, we learn that God's Word is truth, that it's accurate, that it's reliable. This vision took Daniel 373 years into the future, and history has proven its remarkable accuracy. If you're going with, along with me and jotting into the, the margin of your Bible, I count out 43 predictive prophecies that were fulfilled as they were given. 43. Last time we were together, if you recall, I told you that eight of the 300 prophecies of Jesus Christ, any eight of them that you would choose to pick, that it would be 10 to the 17th power of the probability that those things would occur. Here we've got 43 predictive prophecies that are given in this one little section of the Bible. And every one of them came, came accurately fulfilled exactly as God says. God's Word is reliable. The second thing is that character does make a difference. It's important because character always precedes actions. Our character is uh, who we really are. Our reputation is who people think we are, but our character is who we really are when no one's around and nobody else is looking. It's those quiet times that we have with God when it's not for show and it's not because we're concerned about who sees us or doesn't see us. It's because we want to develop a relationship, an intimate relationship with God and spend time with Him alone so He can teach us and He can mentor us and He can nurture us and encourage us and He can convict us and He can judge us and condemn us where we need to be condemned so that, we're so that we can be right with God. Character makes a difference. We also learn that God tells us uh, the, way, the way it is and the way it's going to be. He doesn't sugarcoat it and He tries, doesn't try to make it politically correct. He's not worrying about getting elected. He can just tell it the way it is. There's an old southern expression, and I like it, from uh, one of the southern chap chaplains that uh, I'd have do some chapels for us when we are on the East Coast. But, but, but he said this once, and I've never been able to forget, and he said, you know, I'd rather be told I'm wrong if I am than right if I ain't. I'd rather be told I'm wrong if I am than right if I ain't. How about you? Some of us would rather be told that we're right when we ain't because we don't want to change what we're doing. I'd rather be told I'm wrong if I am than right if I ain't. God doesn't hesitate to tell the truth so that we can take appropriate action. We also learn that our number one protection for deception, look at the verse 33 and 32. By smooth words, deception, here we go, he will turn to godlessness those who act wickedly toward the covenant. But notice this. But the people who know their God will display strength and take action. You know, of all the words that I read, those were the most powerful words that jumped off the pages at me. But those who know their God will display strength and take action. Sometimes we don't really even know the depth of our walk with God until we are persecuted to the point where it's going to cost us something so we can demonstrate that we truly are children of God. As I look back and losing that job, one of the greatest truths that God revealed to me was this. Chuck, you don't have to worry about any man providing for you because I have access to everything in the universe. I will take care of you. To lose that taught me that, you know what, my, my, my view of God was so small and so limited, I didn't realize how powerful He truly is. But we only learn that when we go through adversity. We only learn that when we're faced with persecution. We only learn that when somebody draws a circle around us and says, as for this day, you need to make a choice. As Joshua said, as for this day, I'm going to make a choice. For, as for me and my family, we're here to serve God. And we don't care what the gates of hell will, will shoot forth at us. 
we're here to serve God because we know that we're in God's hands. It says that in those who have insight, how do you know God? You know Him by digging into His Word. How do you know the mind and the will of God? By studying the Word of God. How do you gain insight? By digging into the Word of God. Why do some of us not know God? Because we don't spend, spend any time with Him. We don't spend any time in His Word. We don't even know, we don't know who we believe in. We, we have a limited version. It's usually a version that's based on what other people are telling us rather than what we're discovering for ourselves. And lastly, we learn that words do convey a meaning. Words mean something. God's Word conveys truth and life and forgiveness and hope and direction. And I was thinking the simple words of John 3.16. When God says, God so loves this world that He gave us His only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. Do you know those words mean something? Those words convey wonderful meanings. God loves this world so much He sent us His Son. He demonstrated His love and yet while we were sinners He sent Christ to die for us. He loves us so much that whosoever would simply believe in Him by simple faith, God, I can't work my way to heaven. I can't do it on my own. You're right. There's none righteous. There's nothing good in me. And it's like other people don't even know how really rotten I truly am. And if they knew, they would just know what you know. And the bottom line is, is there's none righteous. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everything God you say about me is true. And there's no way I'd ever get to heaven. God says, exactly. But it's by faith, by grace, we're saved through faith. It's a gift that's offered to anyone who would choose to believe. And when God says, if you believe, whosoever would believe in Him would not perish, meaning what? Would not go to hell. Would not suffer the judgment of God for sin in your life. Those who believe in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. God means what He says. And I encourage you, if you've never got that right in your own life, that you would take a moment now and ask God to forgive you and to believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you've never done it because you don't know whose words to believe, I challenge you now as the Spirit of God convicts your heart to realize, you know what, that's God talking to you. This isn't about me. I don't have anything to offer you. All that I have to offer is the Word of God that I, that I hopefully, that, I, that, I, that I'll share with you as clearly and concisely as I can. But it's the Word of God that's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And you may have been coming here for years. And yet, you know what? You don't even have a clue whether if you die today you're going to heaven or not. Get that issue resolved because it has nothing to do with how many times you come to church, how much you read your Bible, how much you try to do good things. It has nothing to do with any of that. It has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with God. It's a gift that He offers you. Are you willing to submit and are you willing to in humility of heart receive the gift father we thank you for your word the words that convey meaning that, that that convey meaning of life and death and forgiveness and judgment and heaven and hell and all the things that you tell us god your word is so accurate that we can see in, in this in this simple passage not simple but complicated but so profound that Daniel, as he looked 373 years into the future had no clue as to really what was going on but obviously, as we look back, everything came to fruition exactly as you said, and in the appointed time. God, I just thank you that your word is clear. Father, I just pray for those who have never resolved their relationship with you, that they do that today, for today is the day of the Lord, that they would get that resolved in their own heart. It's not about anybody else, it's just about them, God, and that they would just pray that you would forgive them, that they would believe in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, that anyone who would receive him would have their privilege to be called a child of God. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for forgiveness. We thank you for direction. We thank you that in your word we find strength, that as the people of God knew God and had insight and understanding, they displayed powerful strength in a culture that was hell-bent on destroying them. God, we need to become men and women who are light and who are salt and who are strong in a culture that is trying to extinguish you. Even though they can't, they will try. And even though they hate the truth and they hated Christ and they hated the light and they killed him because of it, God, help us to realize and understand that that's our mission here in life, to be light in the darkness and to be a, a salt that preserves society that is quickly decaying. And we just thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.